Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. So we all know the three types of fun. Oh, do we? What are they? Type one, it's fun while it's happening. It's fun after it happened. Type two. Ding, 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 ding. What's type two? (laughs) Type two, it's fun. (gasps) Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Type two. It's fun. It's you know, not fun while it's You know this is like a requirement of working here, right? I'm going to get fired for this. This is bad. <laughs> okay, type two fun. It's not fun while it's happening. It's fun after. Type three fun. It's not fun while it was happening, and it's not fun after. But what if it's a disaster, like a calamity, a fiasco, an adventure fiasco? Are there classifications for that? That's like debacle one, two, and three. So, (laughs) (laughs) your job's on the line here. Your job's on the line. We typically think about, uh, you know, debacle as a noun, but it's actually a verb. And I know we're doing an English lesson here, but it'll help out for today's uh, show. So, there's to debacle means to basically, in a in a humorous way, to disaster. I mean, things might appear like they're, you know, uh, like pretty close to a hospital trip, but they probably aren't. But you're debacling. And uh-huh. and uh, there's lots of different ways you can debacle in, you know, your everyday life. You can debacle in the outdoors, which is, of course, what we're here to talk about today. But I think today we have a type three debacle where it's clearly a debacle while it's happening. <laughs> it's a clearly a debacle in hindsight. But damn, is it fun to talk about afterwards? Because the truth of this is we all, misery loves company. And we've all been through these moments where it's like, we've had a trip where nothing goes, nothing goes well. Like maybe nothing goes wrong, right? Like 
That's mm-hmm. the, the there is you know there can be a dark side of this, but we're talking about the fun stuff today. And mm-hmm. it's like we've all had that trip where nothing seems to go as planned. Uh, we get confronted with scenarios that no one really could have dreamed up, and all of a sudden, <laughs> through a twist of fate, <laughs> we're left to deal with this. And everyone that can possibly help us deal with this, all they want to do is sit back and laugh at us. And maybe I'm the only one who's gone through that, but I I'm, I have a hunch that it's not. Um, fill us in. What's happening today? Well, today we have a story about a couple of young raft guides. Their second season ever on the Maine Salmon. And this is a perfect oh. setup. This is like this is like quintessential debacle. One, two, three. A full-scale river fiasco ensues. What happens? Do we have to find out? You're supposed to say, I'm Fitzka Hall. I'm Fitzka Hall. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm Fitzka Hall. I'm Cordelia Zars. And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Dun, dun, dun. In 2017, Tony Martin was 25 years old. He'd been trying to figure out his career, did a bunch of job interviews, and eventually decided he wasn't cut out for the 9-to-5 life. So he moved up to his family cabin in Stanley, Idaho, and trained to become a raft guide on the Middle Fork and Main Salmon Rivers. And that year, we had a huge turnover at our raft company, and we had 11 new trainees that were all basically the same age. And it was the highest water year in over 100 years. Tony met his buddy, Martin Lentz, in raft guide training. And everybody on that crew called me Marv. Martin, Tony, and their crew of 20-somethings all spent their first year getting the hang of commercial guiding. They worked for a company that ran big, plush trips down the river through the Frank Church wilderness. So the guides, along with getting their clients safely through whitewater, also cooked fancy meals set up tents and cots, and poured cocktails for their guests. Tony and Martin proved themselves as capable guides in 2017. So when they returned for their second season the next summer, they got assigned to work together on a Maine salmon trip with 24 guests. Martin was named crew leader. This story starts on day one of my first trip as a crew leader. All right, here are the specs. The raft company sends out double launches on the 5th of July every summer. So that means two teams with 24 guests and six guides each cozy up on the launch ramp and prepare a massive amount of gear to send down the river on a six-day trip. There's a green team and a blue team. Tony and Martin are team blue. Other guide names you'll want to remember are Vincent and Matt, who started out on the green team, and Big Rig Bill, We'll get to him later. Each team gets six boats. There are oar boats with a guide steering and guests just chillin', a paddle boat where guests get to pitch in, 
a fishing boat that lags behind with a few guests and one guide. That was Tony's boat. And then the last boat, the J-Rig. Here's Tony. J-Rigs are these huge pontoon boats that were used mainly during World War II for the war effort to transfer large uh, amounts of heavy cargo over like lakes and flat rivers and things like that. They're so big because they're these 28-foot pontoon boats that sit like 10 feet out of the water almost with these huge metal frames that weigh thousands of pounds. These boats have multiple inflatable pontoons. They're huge, but still flexible, like a giant bouncy house loaded up with thousands of pounds of gear. It's so big, it literally has semi-axles cut in half for sweeps on the front and back of the boat. Those are for steering. Between the inflatable pontoons sits a metal deck. The J-Rig houses most of the gear for the whole trip. All of our Canon dry foods, our entire kitchen, our entire heavy metal, which is four cast iron stoves, a blaster, a four stove partner stove, uh, Dutch oven lids, windscreens, showers, coffee pot, 24 cots, 24 chairs, buckets, like water buckets, hand washes, Paco pads, all 24 guest bags. So like all of the guests' luggage, everything from their underwear to their rain jacket to their wallet to their car keys to their everything. Big Rig Bill would helm the J-Rig. He'd trained with Tony and Martin the season before and took a liking to the J-Rigs. Here's Martin. Bill, he was like, I don't know, D1 soccer player with like eight abs and like huge shoulders and just like jacked dude with mutton chops. On July 5th, Tony, Martin, and the other guides met their clients on the launch ramp. We had a group of affluent 60 plusers. Every single person on the entire trip, except for one party was over 60. And the party that wasn't over 60 was a DEA agent who had his two kids. And everyone that was over 60 was all known. They all knew each other. And they were all worked for one of the world's largest oil companies in the crisis management department. (laughs) So, So these people, like one of the guys that we that we took down was the person that was called down to Houston during the Gulf spill. Our first impression of these people was like classic older adventure people that just love to kick it on a beach, read a book, enjoy a little gust of wind during a warm period of the afternoon and want everything to work just fine <laughs> and have no interruptions or hiccups or any sort of mishaps happening that would possibly disturb their moments of peace on the river. (laughs) The guides loaded all their clients' gear onto the J-Rig, and Big Rig Bill pushed off down the river. He'd get a head start so that he could set up camp before the guests arrived. So that when the guests show up, they have this like, oh, wow, look at this camp. Like, we've rolled into camp, and like, all of our bags are lined up in beautiful row, and like, we just like walk up and go lay down in our tent or whatever, go grab a cocktail. That's what a camp is supposed to look like. Once Big Rig Bill had a good lead, Tony, Martin, and the other guides loaded their clients onto the remaining boats. 
they'd be paddling about 15 miles that first day. The green team had already put in. Everything's a little hectic. You're trying to give these people a safety talk. They're sort of like apprehensive. You can like sense their energy of like, oh, what are we getting into? Oh, we're being guided by a bunch of 20 year olds. Like. <laughs> then Martin and Tony's blue team pushed off into the water. So I'm rafting in the fishing boat. We stop, we get lunch, everyone's having a great time, blah, blah, blah. It was a beautiful day on the main salmon. Sandbars gave way to towering granite cliffs as the team entered the deep canyon. Ponderosa pines clung to the shore and swallows darted in and out of shrub brush along the canyon walls. The guests chatted animatedly and dragged their fingers in the water as they drifted downstream. Tony hung back in his fishing boat and coached a few clients on their fly casts. So we're cruising, we're cruising, and then we hit this rapid called Devil's Tooth. The run is a class two, but if you go anywhere else but the run, it turns into be a class three or class four. It's called Devil's Tooth because there's like seven or eight massive like SUV-sized boulders that go across the river. And the middle channel is where you want to go, and you split two of the big massive rocks. To the left of this channel, the far left channel, is a huge channel that takes you in these like massive holes that are these humongous sized rocks, just absolutely humongous rocks, massive. Martin steered his oar boat towards the rapid as Tony hung back. Martin went ahead and ran the line through the rapid. Martin made it through the rapid and eddied out at Devil's Camp where the green team would camp for the night. Martin's team was supposed to regroup at the eddy and then head farther downstream to camp. The green team's gearboat had left hours before Martin, but the guides hadn't unloaded it yet. It sat, fully packed, on the shore of Devil's Camp. Vincent was running upstream with something in his hand. That's when Martin saw a jet boat rampaging upriver. And jet boat Jeff comes up and, like, starts to eddy out and comes right up to me and I'm like oh okay what's going on and like right as he pulls up Vince walks out onto the front of the boat and he's holding the sweep arm of our j-rig and I'm like oh god what is going on and Jeff but Jeff is like yeah man so probably gonna want to cancel your trip Tony emerged through the rapid and eddied out by Martin's boat. So I'm thinking to myself, like, there's no J-Rig. And Vincent's holding the kitchen box first aid kit that should be stuffed in the kitchen box in the J-Rig compartment that's underneath the metal steel floor. And I think to myself, like, oh, shit. Tony climbed out of his boat and approached Martin. And he, I'm like, yo, what, what's going on? And he looks at me and he goes the j-rig flipped and we're all like it was like one of those moments where we're like whoa, 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 whoa. we're all like Phew. vince had seen the whole thing from shore big rig bill had gotten sucked into the wrong line the one with the humongous boulders he hit one and got launched high into the air. He landed downstream unharmed, but the boulders completely mauled the J-Rig. 
The force of the river flipped the entire thousand pound frame, dumped all of their gear, sheared off the stanchion where the motor connects to the back, and ripped apart the semi-truck axle rear sweep. When the rapid finally spat out the mangled boat, Big Rig Bill swam towards it and clung on, riding the current downstream. From shore, Vincent and Matt desperately grabbed throw ropes and tried to drag the boat ashore, but it was too heavy, and the force of the river was too great. They went like three or four miles downriver, getting yanked off the rocks, like swimming to shore, trying to pivot it over, getting yanked in. Meanwhile, there's things just floating away from the boat, namely our non-waterproof guest bags. <laughs> A few miles downriver, Jetboat Jeff helped nudge the J-Rig towards shore and made sure Big Rig Bill was okay. His shirt was torn up and emotionally he was shaken, but physically unharmed. Then Jetboat Jeff motored Bill back up to Devil's Tooth to reunite with the rest of the group. J-Rigs don't flip, period. The last known flip happened almost 30 years ago. We're five hours into a like 140 hour trip and you're telling me that the boat that is carrying everything and all of our most important stuff and all of the client's personal items flipped and then I get there and Martin is sitting on the rock feverishly typing away on his phone with this stupid little spot five modem like perched on a rock like blinking red lights because it wouldn't connect because we were too deep in the canyon and he was just like beating sweat and his whole face was flushed with red underneath his big sun hat you could tell there was just like a stress ball building and building and building tony and martin finally got a hold of their boss so i call him up and <laughs> i'm like shook just like Oh, I'm like dreading this call, like stressed out, don't know what to do and call him. And I'm like, hey, boss, Bill flipped the J-Rig. Uh, we're here at Devil's Tooth. And he just goes, hold on, Martin. Wait, wait one second. I got to put you on speakerphone. I'm here with the guys. They're not going to believe this. Shit. And I'm like, <laughs> like sort of upset and like. And he's like, okay, yeah, say that one more time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we flipped the J-Rig in Devil's Tooth. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, here, let me, let, me, let me figure some things out. Their boss instructed them to spend the night with the green team at Devil's Tooth, making it a 60-person camp. Meanwhile, at headquarters... Managers would purchase new clothes for the clients and resupply a full load of gear and drive a new boat to the put-in the next morning. So the guides started unloading gear and setting up at Devil's Tooth Camp. Of all their clients' gear, only sleeping bags and sleeping pads remained. That's it. We don't have their personal clothes. We don't have their tents. We don't have their cots. We don't have chairs for them. We don't have dining tables. They did have fresh food but no way to cook it. Their entire kitchen plummeted to the bottom of the river. So you haul the boats up, and then I'm walking back to the beach. 
And I realized that like none of the information that has actually been going on has been communicated to the guests. So they're still like completely in the dark. So Tony's like, all right, let's break out the wine. They got some appetizers together, poured drinks, and broke the news to the guests. And that was when I just got like screamed at by a few guests of just like, I want my money back. This is ruined. You guys don't know what you're doing. This is like the worst thing ever. And we were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The green team made space in their kitchen to cook for 60 as Tony, Martin, and the other blue team guides tried to ease the tension. After they got some food and booze into their guests, tempers evened out. And then all of a sudden we started noticing that our clients are starting to steal cots and sleeping bags from the other team. (laughs) The green team leader was not amused. Their clients are taking all of our bags and taking all of our costs and taking all of our food and like blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden he goes in the cooler and their bottles of like 12-year-old Florida Kanye rum has all been drank. (laughs) And we look over and these clients are wasted. Blue team guides started triaging, settling people down, returning stolen bags and cots, restoring order. Eventually, they managed to get everyone to sleep. At 4 a.m. the next morning, Matt and Big Rig Bill woke up, ran, 13 miles up the river trail, and met their boss at the put-in. Their boss had a new boat ready for them, filled with replacement gear. The plan was, Bill and Matt would paddle that boat downriver 23 miles to Sunny Bar, where they'd meet up with their team at the next camp. But along the way, they also had to pick up the mangled J-rig and push it down the river, because they couldn't just leave it there for someone else to deal with. In the meantime, our group goes to Sunny Bar, which is right next to the hot springs. So we float down, stalling as much as we can because like we don't have a kitchen. We don't have propane. We don't have stoves. We don't have anything to cook anything. So we had like our cooler from our lunch cooler, right? And then we had like our food and that was it. We had no can and dry food. The blue team, minus Bill and Matt, arrived at Sunny Bar around 4 p.m. There's only four of us. These people are pissed off. Like, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, we got to get apps out by five, period. So Tony, as lead chef, assembled some appetizers to ward off guest irritability while they waited for Matt and Bill. But Matt and Bill were having their own epic on the river. Once they made it to the broken J-Rig, they had to figure out how to push it downstream. Bill would be on it. I think he had like a front rudder, not the rear rudder. And he would kind of pivot it. And Matt would just push the J-Rig from behind with the oar boat and just keep pushing him. And then when he'd get to rapids, Bill would kind of set up the line and then run and jump off the boat into Matt's boat. And Matt would back pull and like let the J-Rig just like ghost ride like clank, clank, clank through all these rapids. And then they would be like right behind it. So really sketchy. Several hours later, clients were bordering on hangry, but they finally saw Matt and Bill upriver 
pushing the mangled J-Rig with the 18-foot gearboat. That was the point where we all realized that's how we were going to get this J-Rig down the rest of the river. And we hadn't done any of the big rapids yet or the lakes. So we're sitting there and we're like, oh my God, like, this is absolutely insane. Like, what are we going to do? Bill and Matt made it to camp, haggard, covered in sweat, and completely exhausted. The other guides quickly got to work unpacking the new kitchen equipment so they could start to cook dinner. And then all the guests, like, are doing okay. You know, it's all right. And then all of a sudden, it's time to go to bed. And we look around, and all of our Paco pads are gone. And we're like, uh, like, where did all of our Paco pads go? Paco pads are thick, waterproof sleeping mats. The guides wandered around camp, confused. Then they caught a glimpse inside a guest tent. And all of the men had taken the Paco pads and had their pads that we give them, which is two like Alps pads, and then the Paco pads. They had three pads stacked on top of each other, and they're all already sleeping on them. And so the guides are like, we're all sitting there like, what the fuck are we going to do? Like, we have to get our Paco pads back. Like, we got to go to bed. And I literally start shaking on these people's tents. I'm like, hey, uh, hey, Jim. Yeah. Um, so, like, I know it's late stuff, but, like, we kind of need our pads back. And all the men get up like, this is f-ing bullshit. Like, 60-year-old, I'm 65 years old. You expect me to sleep on the ground? And, like, and we're like, we're sorry. Like, the cots were in the J-Rig. It was like one of the most awkward situations in my entire life. It was so horrible. Things just kept going wrong and people were getting demoralized. Like my like words of encouragement were just like, hey, just remember at some point, you're gonna get a fall asleep tonight. You're just gonna get a lay down and sleep and you're not gonna have to deal with any of this. And it's gonna be really sick. After the break, the guides get the trip back on track and the last three days go perfectly as planned. Not. Stay with us. And support comes from Kuat Racks. They just released the Ibex, an overlanding truck bed rack that handles substantial loads both on and off the grid because being off the grid is dope. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, the black powder coat is made for all the nature you can throw at it. Available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, the Ibex is engineered for adventure with versatile full and half-height configurations. For more details, visit kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this bedrock and all the dope places you go. The next day, day three, Tony, Martin, and the crew had to get through the big five. Those are five big rapids in a row. The moves aren't that hard, but they're huge rapids, a massive amount of water. So after like an hour and a half, we lose Matt and Bill behind us. Matt pushing the J-Rig with the boat and Bill sitting in the J-Rig with only the front suite to point the front of the boat. Tony, Martin, and the other guides couldn't afford to wait for Bill and Matt at every eddy. 
So they kept running the rapids, made it through the Big Five, and reached their next camp at about 4 p.m. But we're all sitting there like, oh my God, like Matt and Bill are going through all the Big Five with no help and no support. And like Martin's like crying because he's like so distraught and like so disappointed in himself, even though there's nothing he could do. And finally they come around the corner and they're like, they look like, I got this, I assume that like when the people from Shackleton's expedition found the island that they like found the people had originally, like they looked a little bit like this. And then they can't, they can't get the J-Rig over to the shore. So we start sprinting down the, the thing and they're hucking ropes and they can't get us ropes. They can't get us ropes. Finally, Martin and I swim out like 20 feet offshore, grab the ropes and start swimming back to shore with the J-Rig. And we like pull as hard as we can, wrap the ropes around trees and like finally get the J-Rig like pendulum in. And then Bill literally gets off of the J-Rig and like, I just like started crying. I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. Like that we had to leave you. We had to run our trip. Like we couldn't sit there all, you know what I mean? Like we couldn't sit in these eddies with these old people in the sun in like 90 degree heat all day, just like waiting and waiting and waiting. Martin was crying and I was crying and Bill was like a zomp. Matt and Bill looked like they just gone through hell. It was just like hellacious. That's when the clients approached Tony and Martin. And they were like, we're like crisis management people. And I think it's time for us to take charge of this. And that was when like, there started to feel like there was like sort of a mutiny from the guests. And this is the dude who basically got called down to the, to deal with the oil spill in freaking the Gulf. Right. And, and, and so he's like, we're in charge now, basically. And we're like, uh, and we're like, like 24, 25 years old. Like, no, you're not like you are not in charge. And basically like we had this huge verbal battle with them about how like we're dealing with this. We're going to make the decisions. We know what we're doing, which caused like you can imagine how much tension this caused. The guides held firm that they would continue leading the trip. And after a long, heated discussion, the clients finally backed down. Order, if not harmony, was restored. Next morning, we wake up. Okay, and let's just clarify this too. We didn't, we haven't talked about this, right? So the guest bags, we lost 22 out of the 24 guest bags in the flip. So the days after this, we're like running around like pirates. And there's like bags like floating on a beach here. Then like all of a sudden here comes a jet boat and the jet boat has like three guest bags. And all the guests are on the boat like, oh, is it my bag? Like, oh, it might be my bag. Like, oh, I hope it's my bag. And then like they're all like, kind of like sitting on the, like the edge of their seat on the boat for like when the names get called out of like whose bags were. F- <laughs> They'll be like, Stacy. And then Stacy will be like, yeah, it's my bag. <laughs> so funny, dude. And like, it was just like, absolutely. And then we get to camp and then we'd sort of dry lines. So they could all like dry out all their clothes and all that stuff. 
it was just like absolutely hilarious to be honest with you. So day four began with the stretch on the main salmon that guides call the lakes. It's a huge stretch of flat water within a beautiful granite canyon. They sent Matt first on the gearboat, pushing the J-Rig with Bill. Matt hadn't been to rabbit camp before, where they'd be staying that night, but Tony gave him a map and told him it was a big sandy beach, he couldn't miss it. It was an 100-degree day. The guides couldn't wait to get their grumpy guests out of the sun and into the shade at camp. We're about to get to rabbit, and here comes a jet boat. And we're all like, no, please don't come talk to us. Please don't come talk to us. And they come rolling up, and guess who's on the jet boat? Matt. And we're like, oh, my God, what happened? Oh, my God, what happened? And we got up there, and Matt had missed rabbit. And not only did he miss rabbit, but he kept rowing and rowing and rowing all the way to the bulls, which is at mile, like, 71. That was five miles past Rabbit, which on the lakes is about another two hours of paddling. The guests were pissed. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Like we can't, we can't do a single thing right. At eight or nine that night, they finally pulled in to Upper Bowl Camp. Almost horrible camp ever. It's like hotter than shit. There's literally not a single tree on the entire camp. And to get to the camp is this massive eddy that you have to burn like a thousand calories to row into. It's just like, <laughs> just like horrendous. Fortunately, the next day they only had to row a few miles to their next camp. And luckily we had two kids on the trip. The DA agent had brought his two kids and we set up this big slip and slide and like had a, like a really nice day on the beach. And basically like these kiddos at the end of this trip like kind of saved a lot of it because of just like their attitudes and their energy. And we had like a really great last day. On the last day of their trip, morale finally lifted. The anticipation of ending this crazy trip and getting home to a dry pair of clothes boosted people's moods. They just had one last rapid, Chittum, to get through safely. And then they'd be out. Matt is pushing Bill through Chittum. And Bill, he like, I don't remember exactly what it was just like so terrifying to watch. And Matt got sucked into the cliffside and was just getting bashed up against the cliff and like almost slips his 18-foot boat. And Bill barely gets through Chittum. But everyone made it through with just a few scratches. And finally, they made it to the long-awaited takeout. The guide started unloading gear and breaking down the boats. And the bus that was supposed to pick them up broke down. <laughs> so we're sitting here on this beach trying to derig, and literally there's no bus to take these guests away from us. And we're all like, please, like, please take them away. Like, please. That was the one point where, like, I finally just lost it. Like I felt like I'd sort of kept my cool and been like, okay. And I was like up on the truck, just like kicking coolers and just like, I don't know. I'm like a pretty level-headed person. Like I don't get upset. And I was just like screaming. And these people are still sitting there like waiting for their bus. And now they're like, what is going on?
Eventually, Tony, Martin, and the other guides loaded the boats into their gear trailers, arranged for a different bus to come pick up their clients, and drove away. I remember just like looking at them and like driving away and like not a single one of them waved. (laughs) Did you guys have a name for this trip after it happened? Yes, we call it Hell Week. In the years since Hell Week, the flip trip has gone down in local lore as one of the most epic rafting sagas on the main salmon. It's been told, retold, and dramatized for every audience in small-town Idaho bars. The raft company no longer uses J-Rigs at all. And now, they outfit every guest with a bright orange, waterproof personal bag. As for Tony and Martin, they walked away from that trip exhausted, and bedraggled, but wiser. It can always be worse. Like you're on other trips and things go wrong or like things get stressed out and you're like, ah, like not the flip trip. That was like, that was as bad as it gets. There are uncontrollable things in that situation and like control the things you can control and be okay with the other stuff. I think we grew from it a ton. It made us, it turned us into incredible raft guides. It turned us into incredible mitigators problem solvers. It gave us so many opportunities to come out of this experience, learning something and gaining a skill that will be applicable in the rest of life. And then also too, like even for me personally, like whenever something goes wrong, you know, I just think to myself like, Hey, you got through hell week, like you can get through this. You know what I mean? Like no matter what you can get through it. And there's always, there's always a positive to everything, no matter what, it's just your perception of how you look at it. And I think that was a huge part of, of this experience for us as a team was basically creating that mold and that ideal together of like, all right, we can do anything now. And like, as long as we stay composed, doesn't matter what challenge we face, we'll be able to overcome it. Thank you, Tony and Martin, for sharing your story. That was amazing. (laughs) Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. So if you've got a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, don't hesitate to give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Cliff, Beach, Principal, Aaron Abernathy, Bradley Carter, Common Creatures, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists, Free Music Archive, and Track Club. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Ashley Langles, Becca Call, and me, Fitzcahal. Illustration by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitzcahal. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.